On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Luke Stamps and Dr. Matt Emerson about liturgy in Baptist church life. So we cover topics like just what is liturgy? Why do most low church liturgies look the way they do today? What's the history behind that? Is it possible to maintain Baptist identity and utilize practices from other traditions? Is it possible to be a Baptist with a high church liturgy? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com, or you can chat more about it with us in the London Lyceum Society. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're podcast is devoted to thinking, uh, but we don't want to just think in the abstract. We want to think well. So in an effort to think well, we've tried to pursue and promote a couple of particular virtues, and that's charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I think we have uh, two men who exemplify all these things very well today um, in Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson. I would imagine if you're familiar with uh, anything of the Baptist world, you're familiar with these guys who are doing awesome work over at the Center for Baptist Renewal. Uh, if that's the first time you're hearing of this term, the Center for Baptist Renewal, then you need to go Google it and check them out. Uh, they've got great resources, and they're doing some really great work to promote a uh, Baptist, I guess, ecclesiological life that is grounded and rooted in uh, the Christian tradition but is also distinctively Baptist. So it's you know trying to be Catholic with a little c, but without losing our own distinctives. So I think it's awesome stuff. So go check it out. Um, today, we're going to be talking about liturgy, and, and particularly liturgy for Baptists. I imagine a good chunk of our listeners probably either don't know what about liturgy is or think liturgy has nothing to do with Baptists. So I, I'm looking forward to engaging the question uh, and talking with it because I think both these guys have written on it and have a passion for explaining what all this means. So before we do that, Luke, why don't you introduce yourself first and then Matt can introduce himself. Uh, just quick bio for those who aren't familiar with, with you and then maybe a, a short little snippet on what got you interested in this particular topic. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. Thanks for asking us. Um, so I'm Luke Stamps. I'm originally from Alabama. Um, went to Auburn University, went to Southern Seminary for a couple of degrees, uh, taught at California Baptist University for a while. And for the last four years, I've taught at Anderson University in South Carolina. I teach systematic theology. Um, yeah, and in terms of liturgy, I mean, I, I guess what sort of got me interested in the more liturgical traditions. We can talk more about what liturgy means exactly. I'm sure we will as we move along. But I, I interned at a church when I was in college that was actually a Presbyterian church, uh, but was but was fairly liturgical in its, in its structure. They followed the church year, uh, all the seasons of the church year, the colors, uh, the lectionary, and so on. And it was, and it was the first time I'd ever seen that expressed in a church that was really gospel centered and vibrant and healthy. Uh, and so just that combination of, of sort of evangelical fervor that I grew up with in a more low, low church Baptist context, but set to the key, so to speak of, uh, uh, lack for lack of a better term, a higher, uh, church liturgy, um, was really 
uh, arresting to me, and it, and it sort of created a desire for seeing something like that happen in the Baptist tradition as well. Yeah, so uh, I'm Matt Emerson. I'm the dean of the College of Theology at Oklahoma Baptist University. And actually, by the time this uh, podcast airs, uh, my title will change a little bit, so I'll be the dean of Theology, Arts, and Humanities at OBU. Uh, and my my interest in liturgy also comes from my background. Uh, I grew up in a mainline denomination, which was heavily liturgical in our services. But uh, at least in my memory, and this may not be the memory of others who were there, uh, especially adults, but in my memory as a child, it was dead, dry, didn't feel like anybody believed what was being said or sung or prayed. Um, and I really went in the opposite direction uh, during seminary. And then towards the end of my Ph.D. work, I became friends with uh, two two men who were actually moving to be ordained in the Anglican priesthood, and also was invited to go to a conference in Canada that was led by an Anglican Old Testament scholar. And in both of those settings, uh, I was introduced, kind of exactly what Luke said, uh, to liturgical form with what you might call evangelical substance, uh, people who believe what they were saying, they, they were invigorated by it. And so the, those those dead things uh, from my youth actually came to life uh, for me towards the end of PhD work. And I'm, I'm a committed Baptist convictionally, uh, and so I didn't want to change denominations, but I also wanted to explore what it would look like to introduce more liturgical forms really back into to Baptist life. All right, guys. So maybe I'll kick you back over to Luke. We've uh, we've we've used the word liturgy and liturgical already. Um, maybe just just tell us what we mean by by that word liturgy, because I think a lot of folks they hear that they think Roman Catholic or something that it doesn't have any place in Baptist life. So maybe just help us understand what that means. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have pointed to the um, the kind of component parts of the Greek word uh, where we get our word liturgy that it sort of literally means the work of the people. Um, but I'm not sure how helpful those those kinds of word studies are. But uh, in any event, liturgy uh, is is really just the, the way that we talk about the the order, the structure of our worship services. Um, and so, in that sense, many you know historians of Christian worship have pointed out every church has a liturgy. Now, we when we think about liturgy, we tend to think about a particular type of structure in, in church worship one that is more traditional or more formal. Uh, but in a sense, every church has a liturgy. I mean, they're, they're, even, you know, I grew up in in Baptist churches that, that sort of prided themselves almost in being non-liturgical. I mean, no one ever used that term necessarily, but just an emphasis on extemporaneous prayers, on being led by the Spirit, you know. Um, you know, sometimes the preacher would say, you know, I had a sermon prepared, but I felt the Lord was leading me to go in this different direction. And there's something about that that we can that we can um, celebrate and, and admire, like a sensitivity to the Spirit's work. Um, but even in those kind of churches that were sort of uh, self uh, sort of self consciously extemporaneous, you still had set forms, right? I mean, so you still had uh, you know a particular introduction announcements, some type of invocation, 
usually then three hymns, first, second, and fourth verses only. Uh, you know, a prayer that was said over the offering by one of the deacons that ended up saying basically the same thing every time, you know, um, lead, guide, and direct us, you know, bless, you know, Brother Ronnie when he brings the message. And I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of chuckling as what I'm saying is I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm actually saying something in some sense that's positive about that, that we as human beings are kind of hardwired for routine. Uh, for patterns, for habits. And so even in the most, you know, doggedly extemporaneous churches that you could think of, there still ends up being a form. And and what I found out just in being in ministry over the years is once you introduce something and do it for four or five weeks in a row, then people start to expect it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, there is a liturgy, a, an order to every wor- worship service, even ones that we might characterize as more extemporaneous or spirit-led. And that's okay, right? That's not like a bad thing. Um, and so liturgy is just describing the order, the structure of what we do in worship. And, and of course, there, there are elements of worship that are described in the New Testament. Um, you know, there's not necessarily a prescribed order um, in the New Testament, but certainly there are elements of worship that are uh, either by explicit precept or by, uh, you know, a clear pattern that the New Testament church were engaged in. And so liturgy can sound like a, like a scary word to, to many low church people. We think, well, that's Catholic, that's Orthodox, or even that's Anglican or Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, anything but Baptist, right? But no, even Baptists have, have their own liturgies. The, the point is just to say, are we going to be thoughtful about them? Are we going to try to conform them to Scripture? Are we going to be sensitive to how Christians in the past have structured and ordered their worship services? Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the the common repetition that happens in local in Baptist churches that seem to want to push back against the idea of liturgy. I think of pretty much every Baptist church I've been a part of, and I imagine I think that's pretty much the case, where it does by default end up becoming uh, repeating the same form of liturgy to some degree. So maybe Matt. Why do you think most low church liturgies, particularly Baptist, have ended up looking the way they do today? Um, is there some sort of historical impetus behind this? And I mean, just how has that developed? Yeah. So Luke and I have an article in Chriswell Theological Review called Liturgy for Low Church Baptists. Uh, and I don't remember what year that's from, a few years ago. And in that article, uh, we suggest that at least in in America, in an American context, uh, that shift towards a a more low church view of repeated worship practices, and and particularly um, not celebrating the supper every week, arises out of the frontier context that uh, was dominant in 19th century and even even in some 18th century contexts uh, in the U.S. And, and it wasn't the U.S. yet, but in the U.S. and in the frontier. So as the church expanded west, you had more revival services, you had more evangelistic services, and uh, the view was that the the repetition of the Lord's Supper every week hindered the ability of those services to be geared towards uh, evangelism 
and revival. Uh, now I don't I don't agree with that, but uh, that that was I think some of the historical impetus for that. I mean, you also have, of course, broader trends in Baptist life that are, that are really you find throughout Baptist history with respect to reacting against Roman Catholic sacerdotalism um, and and their views of the sacraments. Uh, so, I think broadly speaking, there's some reactionary. Uh, issues related to how Baptists view what they're doing in a worship service in comparison to what both Anglican and Roman Catholic uh, churches are doing in theirs. Um, And then more specifically, in an American context, the shift towards the frontier affected that as well. And and so the, just to, just to piggyback off that, the, the frontier liturgy, as it's sometimes called, um, there's a really helpful book by James F. White, now, there are like three James Whites who write in the area of theology. There's a James Emery White, there's a James F. White, and there's another one. But we'll just talk about James F. White, who is a historian of Christian worship. Uh, it's probably not the one that people know. But uh, James F. White, um, who's a historian of Christian worship, wrote a book, a very helpful and very brief uh, introduction to the history of Christian worship. But that, that's where we get this idea of the frontier liturgy, which a lot of our list, a lot of your listeners will recognize um, the structure. It's basically a threefold structure, a, a service of songs, um, you know, which usually had to do with uh, sort of the affective dimension of the Christian faith. Uh, we might think of like Fanny Crosby songs, who was who, were, who was writing during these frontier revivals. Um, so a service of songs. And then a sermon that was more evangelistic than expositional. Um, and the third part was an altar call. So songs, evangelistic sermon, altar call. That's what was happening in the the revival meetings, what they called the protracted meetings, right? Where they would have these camp or tent meetings for weeks at a time. And, and slowly that infiltrated. Well, that's probably not the right word. Slowly that became, came to affect... Uh, the uh, the the churches that were feeding those revivals, and so that's kind of where we get that very familiar structure to us. And you know what we say in that article is that that's it's not all that's not all bad. You know we we're not like ashamed of our Baptist heritage on this. Like we don't at least you know I'm not. Maybe Matt is. No, <laughs> I also am not ashamed of that. <laughs> no, we're we're not. We're not ashamed even of like revivalism. I know that that sort of becomes a boogie boogeyman or, or, you know, a term of derision to, to label something as revivalistic is sometimes just to dismiss it by a certain kind of reformedish, you know, evangelical. And certainly there are things to criticize with the revivals. We'd have to spend a long time on the second great awakening and things like that. But at the same time, there's something good and right about like songs that talk about our spiritual lives and and extending the offer of the gospel in the public worship service and even having a space for people to make a, a decision for Christ. Like we don't, we don't have to, as Baptists, we don't have to, you know, look with suspicion on that and, and try to like level up to our, you know, Presbyterian or Anglican friends to say, Oh, we're not really like that. We're more astute than that. Uh, no, I think we should be, I'm not proud. I mean, that's the wrong term. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be proud. That's a sin. Uh, but, but we should be thankful for the heritage that we have as Baptists, that one of the distinct emphases of Baptists is that we care about missions and evangelism. Second to none on that. I'm sure other people care about those things too. 
Uh, but that defines really what it means to be a Baptist. And I don't think we want to give that up, whatever else we say about liturgy. So, Right. And so, so briefly what we say in the article is that uh, Baptist liturgy shifted from the traditional structure of word and sacrament to a structure of song and sermon. Uh, and I think the, the latter is essentially pervasive today. And I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a second, but I just don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go down that road a little bit. Cause I think part of the answer to this next question has to do with how we understand Baptist history. Um, in general, there's there's the the more landmark uh, view of, of of Baptist history, and then um, maybe that's fallen out of favor in our circles. I, I don't know. Maybe you guys can answer that. But talk a little bit about how, as Baptists, we maintain our identity. Um, but of course, we want to rightly define that identity. But then we also are able to utilize practices from other traditions with, without compromising. Um, who we are as Baptists. So maybe to begin in answering that question, tell us how you think as Baptists we need to view our history. Um, what, what's the most helpful way for us to go about that? Matt, you're 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 just now reading the Bingham book, right? Yes. Um, have you guys had Bingham on to discuss his yeah, book? Yeah, we have. It's a great book. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Talk about that, Matt. I know you're enjoying it. Well, I... <laughs> You know, I think that when most people think of Baptist history or what it means to be Baptist, they tend to limit that to the last 100 years or so, maybe 150. Uh, at this point, if you want to stretch it back to maybe just the SBC, since that's all of our context, I think uh, stretching it back almost 200 years. Uh, but the reality is that <clears throat> Baptist thought goes back 400 years plus at this point. And what we see in the American Baptist context, first of all, American the American Baptist context isn't the only Baptist context historically or contemporaneously. Um, and so American Baptist life doesn't look the same as British Baptist life or Australian Baptist life. That's one thing to point out. Um, but the other thing, is, other thing to say is that American Baptist life right now doesn't always entirely line up with early Baptist thought. And even as I'm saying early Baptist, right, Matthew Bingham is in my head going, well, there's no such thing as Big B Baptist uh, in the 1600s. Um, and so just for those people who are unfamiliar with Bingham's argument, is, is I'm only through the first couple of chapters, but his big point in those couple of chapters at least is that there was no quote-unquote pan-Baptist movement in, in the 17th century there were Baptistic separatists, um, but not just a, a denomination called Baptists that you split along soteriological lines. And so, you know, you think you think along the line along the lines of early Baptists, uh, however you want to term that. And uh, to be a Baptist at that point um, was to be a small C Catholic Christian who had particular convictions about congregational church government, credo-baptism, and increasingly uh, separation of church and state. And that's what it meant to be, uh, you know, to use Bingham's terminology, a Baptistic separatist, to use more familiar terminology, that's what it meant to be a Baptist. Uh, and so I think, you know, 
in order to answer that question, you know, we, we have to answer it historically. And so that's what I would say there. Um, and then personally, dis- despite the ways that the Baptist movement has grown disparately, so in, in a variety of ways, in a variety of places, I still think that if we're going to call ourselves Baptists, it's important to tie whatever we're saying is Baptist off to what early Baptists thought. I, I don't think we have to match them point for point necessarily, but at some point, you know, if, if a movement strays too far from its founding, then I don't know how you can legitimately call it that same movement anymore. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a question ultimately of, um, what did early Baptists mean by being Baptist uh, or Baptistic separatists? Um, how do we relate to that? And of course, ultimately the question is what does scripture teach us? Um, and I'll leave it at that for now and let Luke chime in if he wants. Yeah, I mean, I think the point you, ma- you made about like not necessarily matching them point for point is also important. Um, and I don't know, this, I know I, I, you guys are more self consciously um, 1689ers, I guess, than we are. Uh, right? Second London, two LBC, let's, let's keep the connotation, <laughs> okay, right, the bad right. connotation. Okay, yeah, so the 1677. <laughs> Wait, 16, do, you guys, do you guys have 1689 in your Twitter bio, bios? That's the question. Uh, I do not. I don't, yeah. no. Okay, all right, fair. But you would you guys <laughs> describe yourself as pretty strict subscriptionists to the Second London? Uh, I don't know about strict. I, have, I mean, I would say to the, uh, to the system, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I've got a couple of issues, I think, here and there. But Right. I th- there, yeah, I've, I have very minimal exceptions, if any. Right. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, I just turned the tables on you. Like, I'm, I come on your <laughs> podcast, and now I'm putting you on the spot with questions. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned it just to say, we, we, we uh, Matt and I, are, are uh, great admirers of, of the Second London Confession, and the First London Confession, and the General Baptist Orthodox Creed, and Hercules Collins' uh, adaptation of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, or- the Orthodox Catechism. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're confessional people in that sense that we, we're great admirers, even if we don't follow every point. But I think one of the places where we want to say, um, you know, retrieval is not repristination, you know, like to, to, to say we want to recover the Baptist past is not necessarily to say we want to just simply recreate a certain era in Baptist life. I, I wonder sometimes, I don't, I don't want to be too um, critical, but I wonder sometimes if people who are more sort of capital B, uh, or sorry, capital R reformed Baptists might, might, it's almost like a nostalgia for a previous era that might not be as open to, more light from the word or, or revision to, because I mean, that's one thing that Baptists, I think, prize, even among the Protestants who prize this, is that we are always reforming according to the scriptures, right? So it's sort of a long way of saying when it touches on worship, what we're talking about here, I don't think to what Matt is saying about recovering the early Baptists necessarily means we have to recover the precise version of the regulative principle that 17th century British Baptists held, right? Sure. Because there's a lot of things that we want to say that they would not have done, right? I mean, ba- Baptists in the 17th century were being imprisoned for not using the prayer book. And we're saying we should use the prayer book, 
<laughs> do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, but being a Baptist is not about just recreating the 1640s. But being a Baptist means committed to those reformational and Baptist principles, also continuing to be reformed according to the scriptures, so that we don't have to hold to the very same approach to worship that they held to, and, and but we can still be in the same spirit, right, as, as they were. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's an issue that I think if you just want to recreate the Puritan era, you're going to have a pretty strict regulative principle, which for the early Baptists meant no instrumentation, you know, for, for worship. It meant no use of the prayer book. It meant no use of the uh, the the lectionary or no use of the, the traditional liturgical calendar. And those are all things that we've said actually Baptists would benefit from. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, that that's just an important point to make, that we want to recover without repristinating what was happening in the 17th century. That, that's a good distinction. So here's a question. I don't know who, who wants to field this. Uh, I mean, I guess the, the main idea is can, can a Baptist take things from a high church liturgy? So you, you mentioned things like the Book of Common Prayer or different things like that. How How is it, if it's possible, that a Baptist can imbibe some of that? Because I think, at least for me anyway, I witness a lot of people who leave being a Baptist for all sorts of reasons, and I think 95% of them are like, well, you can still be a Baptist and have that. Your reason for leaving wasn't actually anything that was really related to Baptist identity. And it seems a, a lot of my friends who want to flirt with Anglicanism and such, do it because of the high church liturgy. But at least for me, and maybe you guys can help me understand this, maybe I'm wrong, I don't see anything in the form of liturgy that an Anglican church has that a Baptist couldn't theoretically put in their own order of worship. I I think probably all of us are in more low church settings, but I don't see that there's anything necessarily wrong with a high church Baptist. Is that Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about being a Baptist is you can do what you want. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I don't really, need, I don't really see any issues with a local church saying, "Hey, you know what? We're going to have a." I mean, here's so before I list these things out, the the remarkable thing, Luke hates that word, so maybe I should choose a different word. Um, the the great thing about the liturgical elements of a typical, say, Anglican worship service is that they're almost all quotations or recitations of Scripture. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I have no problem with saying, let's add a call to prayer that's just reading a psalm. I have no problem with uh, adding confession and assurance and even pardon that are essentially summaries of what Scripture says about confession and assurance and assurance of pardon. Uh, confession and assurance of pardon. I have no problem adding the Lord's Prayer that is a prayer in the Bible taught by our Lord Jesus to a worship service. I have no problem adding a benediction where we read a verse of the Bible over people. I don't have a problem with adding uh, the lectionary readings that are readings from the Bible to a worship service. And I don't have a problem adding recitation of a creed, which is a summary of the Bible to a worship service. So why is it that there's so much fear and hesitation to doing something like that? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think people, I do think that in, at least in my lifetime, um, sorry for my squeaky chair. uh, I think at least in my lifetime, there does seem to be a, 
an exit from Roman Catholicism into evangelical churches, and maybe maybe it's going both directions. I don't know, but um, you know, in, in the evangelical churches that I've been a part of, where we've talked about this, there's a fear that adding those liturgical elements will alienate or confuse former Roman Catholics. Um, there, there's also again um, a, I think a fear of being quote unquote too Catholic. So I, I think that uh, despite the fact that it was over 400 years ago that you know this was all all of this uh, actually military strife between Roman Catholic nations and, and newly Protestant nations was happening, I still think there's just a latent suspicion. Uh, of, of Roman Catholicism. I think that's part of it. Um, and, and, you know, in, in an American context, at least, I, I don't, I can't speak to other contexts, but in an American context, at least, there's also a cultural element to it. So that um, to be a Baptist means something culturally that's reflected ecclesially. So I think, and, and you could say the same thing about any other uh, denomination as well. And, and, you know, that, that works itself out into jokes about who gets to lunch first and whatever. But I mean, there's also an element of, uh, what the liturgical service looks like to that. So wait a minute, we don't do that. We're Baptists or we do this because we're Anglican or, you know, this sort of thing. So I think it's latent fear of Roman Catholicism. I think it's, uh, probably this cultural residue, uh, of it means this to be a Baptist or this to be a Methodist. And then I also think that people just misunderstand what liturgy is and what's actually happening. Mm. You know, I, I don't think that people have looked into it enough to realize it's really just more Bible in your service. And so for people that dub themselves the people of the book, uh, I'm just like, why wouldn't we read more of the book or, or summarize more of the book or confess more of what's confessed in the book uh, in our services? I think there's a variety of factors. Those are three that come to my mind. Uh, it reminds me, I think Carl Truman said something in his creedal imperative to the effect of, uh, if we put a tune to the Apostles' Creed, would you be okay singing it? For those people who feel uncomfortable reciting it, like if we just played some music during it, would it, would it make it different? And it, I, it's funny because it seems like those who I've engaged with in my own previous local churches and now, that would make a difference. If I, number one, didn't tell them it was a creed, and number two, put it, music to it, they would have no idea. Well, Rich Mullins, right, did that in the 90s. <laughs> I believe in God the Father. There you go. <laughs> oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is a great song. I mean, Rich Mullins, rest in peace. That was a great, great song. But I, I, somebody told me recently Hillsong or one of the other worship factories um, – but that sounded more negative than I meant it to be. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, they have, you know, they have a song. Look, they have a song about the creed. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Your mentions, Luke. After this podcast, <laughs> yeah, feel free to feel free to edit that out. I, We're I, thirty I, minutes I really, in. People who are listening this far, I mean, I don't think we have a lot cool. of people who listen to this who are really into Hillsong anyway. Yeah. So you'll be okay. I, you know, I I am actually not a Hillsong hater, but I didn't. I just know that they. Let's talk about Stephen Furtick, too, while we're at it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, but I had to get up for a second. <laughs> um, anyway, so Hillsong, right, um, did this uh, did this version of the Creed. 
speaking of Stephen Furtick, Elevation, I think it was Elevation Church that did a version of the Aaronic Blessing, right? Uh, I don't know if you, you all heard that, but... Nope. Um, so, you know, whatever else we'd say about their theology of those churches, some of the some of the music coming out of them is, is at least somewhat sound, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. I, I think there probably is something to that, like um, to set it to music maybe one way to get it get it get it in you know i mean i i I do think that there's probably a class dimension of this as well that that i think matt sort of was hinting at um with the different sort of cultural expectations for the different denominations i i think you know even even now there's still there still is a kind of class hierarchy among the protestant denominations right yeah um and I think for some Baptists, and this is what I was talking about earlier, like not not trying to just see it, see liturgy as a, as a kind of social leveling up, right? Just to say, hey, we're astute, we're cultured, you know, we're traditional, liturgical. Uh, if that's our motivation in doing it, it's it's a mistake, right? Um, I think we want to be motivated instead by um, the richness of the Christian tradition that it has to offer for our own spiritual formation and also the connection that it gives us to the broader body of Christ, which is something that Jesus cared enough about to pray about, uh, pray for the unity of the church in John 17. So these connections to tradition, in this case, to the liturgical tradition of the church have both an internal formative purpose and also an external ecumenical purpose, right? To show our unity with the broader body of Christ, if those things aren't motivating us and we're just trying to sort of, again, show, show how cultured we are, then it's a mistake. And that's why I think we want to hold on to part of what, it, you know, to, to, we want to hold on to our Baptist identity, even, even as we seek to introduce liturgical elements, let's not give up on, Hey, we might need to just put it to song <laughs> or we might need to, um, include elements that are distinctively Baptist, like a, service of of testimonies or whatever whatever you you think of like from your from your baptist upbringing don't dump on that stuff don't hate that stuff don't don't despise your own um patrimony right these are the things that that, that have been handed down to us distinctively as baptists and uh, we're not trying to just mimic what other churches are doing as we incorporate these things we want to incorporate them into our own identity so that they become ours and not just an alien um you know, imposition. Mm-hmm. So before we move on, I just want to double check. Do you have any other controversial figures you want to bring up? Uh, Driscoll? Mark Driscoll's in the news, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so let's let's talk a bit about the Lord's Supper. So um, I guess two questions. Um, do you What's your take on the frequency of the supper? Um, do you think it's something that we should be doing every week? And do you think it should always come uh, after the sermon? And that's for either one of you guys that that wants to take a a shot at that. I mean, absolutely. It should be every week. Uh, You know, of course I'm a Baptist. So if you don't do it every week, that's your prerogative, but my own conviction and that's pretty strong, but I mean it that way. My own conviction is it should be weekly. Uh, It's, you know, it's a command of our Lord. It's uh, the sign of his presence in first Corinthians 10 and 11. It's the, the meal of unity of the body, meal of unity of body. Um, and 
ultimately it's a, a, a foreshadowing of the eschatological meal that we eat with Christ for eternity. And so it's, yeah. it, it's the opposite of the meal of death that Adam and Eve eat in Genesis 3. It's the opposite of the meal of death that you eat when you go into Lady Folly's house. It's the meal of life. Uh, it's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so just like you, if, you, if you're able to be, and I know there's, you know, it's not, a, it's an imperfect analogy because of uh, all the issues of hunger and, and lack of food elsewhere. Uh, but if you're healthy and able to eat uh, on a regular basis, you, you have to do that to maintain your health, your physical health. And so why would you not feast on the word and at the Lord's table uh, yeah. on a weekly basis? And, you know, I, I've just never heard a good argument against it. Like, I, I feel like I always hear the same stuff over and over. Like, oh, if we do it every week, you know, it's going to become like an empty, you know, something it's not going to it's going to lose its meaning you know and i'm just think we don't we don't say that about preaching or or anything else so it just seems or the offering know. yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey-o. Hey-o. no so it just well, some I, of I don't us know. might I, wish that was every other week yeah. <laughs> um all right a quick question about about the creeds so let's say you want to implement the reading of the Apostles' Creed, for example, into your liturgy. Is there a specific place in, in the order that you think it fits better, or do you think uh, it's just kind of, you know, as good in one place as it is in another? I think it's a good a good introduction to the Lord's table and, and, and a pairing there. I mean, you know, Matt's made the point a couple of times about Baptist freedom to do as you want under the Lordship of Christ, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's fine if it if it is mo- a movable part that can show up in any number of places. But I think there's something significant about uh, having the the creed as a as a confession before we come to the Lord's table. Um, that seems to make sense. Well, I just got a question about. Just, I guess, practical advice for pastors um, in general. Um, Maybe this is something that you, outside of your article, which is, I think, a a great place um, to start. But let's say a pastor is convinced that this this would be a a worthy change for for his church. Um, Are there, do you have any advice for how to go about that? Should he recommend that his church read something or should he... um, teach through a certain series, you know, in preparation um, for this change? Or how exactly should pastors think through making this? Because I think a lot of pastors are, are scared of, of trying to, because this this is a big deal, you know? Um, I mean, this, you know, the weekly gathering of, of the church, and, you know, if you're going to um, make some big changes on, on how that looks, I think that scares um, a lot of pastors because they don't want to, they don't want to, you know, get in trouble and, you know, upset the wrong people and all that kind of stuff. So just... Um, walk us through what you think are some good um, pieces of practical advice for that. Yeah, I mean, I think we we know a few people who have uh, used the sermon series idea to to good effect. So, preaching through each line or, or a couple lines at a time, and then uh, reciting it during that series alongside of the sermon, and that just kind of leads people into okay, we're going to be saying this every week, and it, it lasts after the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, our church <clears throat> typically only recites it uh, after baptisms, and we only do baptisms a few times a year. 
Um, but and, and which I wish we I wish we said it weekly, but um, I'm not the only pastor there. Uh, so you know, potentially you could use baptisms as an opportunity to introduce it as well. Uh, so just when the next person gets baptized, hey, this is a common confession of Christians. We're going to ask this person what they believe, and we're going to say it with them because we believe that as well. Um, and so depending on the frequency at which you practice baptism, uh, that's that's another opportunity. And I mean, you know, you could always supplement either or both of those things with uh, reading a book or something like that as well, or Wednesday night teaching, whatever. Um, but, but those are some ways that I've seen people introduce it to good effect. And obviously start slow, know your people, you know, like you don't want to, you don't want to move from that frontier three-part liturgy one week to the next week it looking like the Episcopal church down the road, (laughs) you know, like maybe start with one thing, you know, um, and incorporate that. One, One thing that if you're, if you're like a really traditional Southern Baptist church, which is the kind of context I grew up in, um, maybe start with the Baptist hymnal. Uh, some of the responsive readings in the back that people have forgotten are there. But we, th- we, th- we think of like responsive readings. That too is something that's like, well, that's kind of high church liturgical. That's something that the Methodists do or whatever. But like look in our own Baptist hymnals and, and use the resources that are there. Um, it's, hard, it's hard for someone to argue that the Baptist hymnal is insufficiently Baptist, you know. And so... Um, yeah, so begin with kind of the resources that are already at your disposal. Start small. Be smart about it. I mean, that's what I tell my students a lot. You know, don't don't go in and have an agenda, an axe to grind. You may there may be things you do that you need to back away from. You know. Yeah. Um, so don't don't be dogged and and stubborn about it. But but back to the Lord's Supper thing. I, I think um, one of the things that we should teach toward in making the supper more frequently a part of our worship services is just the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, it's, it's significant uh, that the earliest Baptists held a view of the Lord's Supper that was much, much closer to Calvin's view than to the view that we normally associate with Zwingli. In other words, the earliest Baptists believed that we actually feed on the risen Christ by faith and are spiritually nourished by it, that God shows up to do something at the Lord's Supper. It's not just our memory. Um, that's what the earliest Baptists believe among the, both the general Baptists and the particular Baptists, and that only waned uh, really in the, the 19th century in America. And they used so, the term sacrament yeah, without reservation. Used, which I love. Bring you it know, on. That's right. Benjamin Keach and many others in the 17th century used sacrament interchangeably with ordinance it wasn't seen as an alternative or as some kind of opposition to it so recovering the early baptist view of the sacraments would help if you think that the 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 supper is nothing does nothing then it's no surprise that you don't do it you know mm-hmm. even if though i mean i want to say even if you're, you're you you don't become persuaded as as matt and i are that the, the supper involves the, a real spiritual presence of the risen Christ by the Holy Spirit. Even if you don't become persuaded of that spiritual presence view and you hold to a more memorial view, you could still hold to a rich memorialism, right? Memory in the Bible actually is not something that is insignificant 
and and thin, but it's a thick concept. To remember what the Lord has done is in itself a spiritual act that God is involved in to strengthen and nourish our faith. And so even if you even if you don't go all the way, you know, with the earliest Baptists to a more Calvinian view of the supper, at least to have a robust memorial a thick memorialism so that you understand that when we do this, it's not it's not something insignificant. I mean, many people have pointed out that Baptists oftentimes say more about what the sacraments or the ordinances are not than what they are. This is just water, doesn't save anybody. Uh, this is just, you know, cracker and juice. You know, it's just a memory. Uh, I think it was Millard Erickson who, who argued that Baptists are so opposed to the idea of the real presence that their view is more accurately described as the real absence. As if the one place in all of creation where the risen Christ is not is in the Lord's <laughs> Supper. Right? And if that's your view of the Supper, then in small wonder you don't do it. Yeah. Um, no, I think practically that's, you know, that's probably not fair, right, to, to, to Baptist churches who do practice it maybe quarterly. It can be a spiritually meaningful exercise. But I think the, I think the higher view you have of the supper, the more you'll want to come to the Lord's table. And so yeah, that's one I way of teaching I, people into a better understanding. I think I borrowed that phrase in an MDiv paper I wrote, and I got, I got uh, some bad comments for using that in there <laughs> saying you should not be trash talking other people that's not what they actually think um so me learn making a mistake and learning from it i guess uh one question if you had to pick one thing let's let's not say the table i think like frequency of it if you had to pick one thing to say you're just a traditional or uh, just even if you're a megachurch just broad pan baptist to go against Bingham's type of thing. What's the one thing you say, you should think about recovering this one. I think this is going to have the most mileage, most benefit to your people. Scripture reading. I mean, I think in most of our churches, the only Bible verse that gets read is what the preacher reads right before he preaches. I don't know. Is that, maybe that's not fair. In the churches I grew up in, I don't want to say most of our churches, um, but in a lot of the Baptist churches I grew up in, there was no scripture read besides the sermon text. And I, I just don't want to be outdone by mainline churches who have a lower view of the Bible than Southern Baptists do by having fewer scripture readings. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's a good, that's a good answer. I wish that, that was what I thought at first. I actually thought, uh, <laughs> I actually, as thought, much as you said Bible earlier, you I were know, preaching. I already said it. Uh, I said it before you there. Uh, so I would say, confession and assurance only only because or maybe i guess not only but primarily because uh it's had, had such an impact on my own uh, spiritual life uh incorporating that practice and and even the formal shape of it uh that's written down in various places including the bcp but but also how we how we use it in, in corporate worship uh, and saying that together uh, you know, I, I think it provides to kind of come back to the very beginning of our conversation. It actually connects the liturgical form with the evangelical substance, uh, that we're acknowledging who we are before God. We're repenting together. Uh, and of course, ultimately individually, because I'm not trying to get into some individual corporate thing. We're saying, we're saying it all together, we're saying we sin, we're acknowledging our sin before God. And then, um, clearly and boldly proclaiming the salvation that's only known through 
God's Son, Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection. And that's both, uh, it it opens up the service, I think, to a more spiritually formative moment for the whole congregation, and also is one of the initial points of evangelism for lost people who are there too. So uh, I think, and it's also, I think it's relatively painless to try to incorporate that. I don't think that people are genuinely gun shy about saying, yeah, let's pray that God would forgive us for our sins this week. (laughs) I think we're all good with that. So, And there is something spiritually powerful about having a fellow believer, even an ordained minister of the gospel, say to you week by week, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're clinging to Christ, confessing your sins, turning from them, your sins are forgiven. You know, yeah. well, not, not that just don't have a theology of ordination, so <laughs> well, leave Unless... that to one side and at least think about the priesthood <laughs> I'm kidding, of all. By the way. <laughs> I know, I know, but I mean, just think about the priesthood of all believers. You know, just to have another a fellow believer. Mm-hmm. You know what one 20th century Baptist called a, a priest at every elbow, right? Every every believer is a priest one to the other, and to have a fellow believer, a fellow priest, to say, you know, if you're clinging to Christ. Brother, your sins are forgiven. That's just a powerful reminder. Yeah, and just yeah, just really stuff. quick before Jordan uh, closes this up, um, if this is something that if you're listening and you think um, you know you want to go down this road with your church, if you go to we mentioned the Center for Baptist Renewal earlier, if you go to their website, um, I think I think they're still on there. At least there used to be four or five sample liturgies. Um, you know that you can. Uh, they're from you know they're actually being used at churches because um, the church is listed on there. So that'll give you some good ideas on, on things maybe you want to implement um, piece by piece. Um, and those are some helpful resources on the Center for Baptist Renewal website. Yeah. I mean, I, I really can't highlight enough. I, I love the the posture and the heart of what these guys are doing with the Center for Baptist Renewal. I think it is it's tremendously needed in uh, at least our Baptist circles that I, I, I run in. Um, I mean, I could count I think every church that I've been at Baptist wise and all the ones that are locally around me could benefit from this type of posture. So I think highly recommend it. Go check out their stuff. I know they're doing other cool things right now. So if you're not familiar with them, please go check them out. Uh, Even if you're not Baptist, I think you'll find that you really enjoy it. I mean, you got, they're doing these readings through, you know, the church fathers and different things like that, which you don't have to be a Baptist to benefit from any of that. So I think, you know, those who are listening who aren't Baptist, you'd still enjoy what they're doing. It's it's really good stuff. It's not like the if you've got some caricature of Baptist in your mind that you don't like, it's not like that. Okay. They're doing really good stuff, trying to be, you know, generous and ecumenical in what they're doing. So go check it out. Anyway, I think this has been really helpful. Thank you too for talking through this more. If you want more info on it, obviously they've written the piece on it in Criswell Theological journal or review whatever that particular term is go find it i'll link to it at least the the, whatever the citation is so you can go find it if it's not online and uh, go check that out and dig more into this and hopefully this is helpful anyway uh, everybody's been listening you've been listening to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we thank you for tuning in 
save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.